What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. It really doesn't matter if you're a rookie or you're a veteran. It doesn't matter if you're in the education world, business world, coaching world, ministerial world. You will face this word, and the word is anxiety. There is a built-in inherent anxiety that comes with leadership. Today, we're going to learn how to manage leadership anxiety with Steve cuss and it's going to be a good one well if i've never met you before my name is mike mike lynch and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and places that god has put us last last episode we got to sit down with athletic director kelly wells before that we were with preston poor and john gordon and pastor joby martin and it's so funny as i trace back the the line of podcasts that have come out through the years anxiety is a word i think it's just around in every leader's life today we get to sit down with steve cuss Steve Cuss has been a trauma and hospice chaplain. He's been a lead pastor, and now he leads an organization helping leaders manage this leadership anxiety, both yours and the anxiety of people that you've led. He has his Master of Divinity degree, 600 supervised hours in clinical pastoral education. He's a spiritual care professional. But even more than that, I believe Steve has his pulse and finger on the pulse of what makes leaders tick. I remember getting off this call and telling some of my staff, that's one I got to get the book to so many of my friends, and I have ordered so many copies. And in fact, I'm begin this fall taking two of the groups that I lead through this book. So I don't know where you're listening from today, but I promise you, you are in for a treat. So I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Steve Cuss. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Mike, it's great to be with you. What a fantastic podcast. I'm I'm excited to dig in when you were telling me before we hit record about who we're talking to. What what an incredible group of people that are in need of some relief. Yep. That's a great way to say it. And I think everybody's in need of relief. Walk me back a little bit. You've had an incredibly unique journey. You met Christ not because mom and dad raised you in a Christian home and you went to church every Sunday. Walk everybody back to where your faith journey began and even how it plays into who you are today. Yeah. Yeah. I was a teenager and, uh, you know, I couldn't have used this, this wording at the time, but I definitely felt lost. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is I, I have a suburban, boring, beige, khaki pant, minivan type testimony. I'm just a, I'm a pretty boring guy. I, I never had a drink of alcohol, never had any cigarettes, but emotionally, I, I just felt lost. Mm. And uh, my older sister, three and a half years older than me, um, she was in high school 
And the local Church of Christ had a new preacher come from the East Coast, and his daughter, or one of his daughters named Elaine, was just this natural, vivacious, very kind evangelist. And next thing you know, all her friends are starting to come to the church, including my sister. And there was a whole wave of baptisms of these kids. Um, and then many of those kids started reaching their siblings, and I, I was one of them. So my sister led me to Christ when I was 14. And uh, it, it was palpable for me, Mike. I, re I remember I felt like, man, this is what it feels like to be home. Mm. Um, and I think just like existentially, as much as a kid can be that way, just the simple idea that there is an all-powerful God who I had always believed in but never done anything about, who knew my name and who loved me, that that was profound for me. So, yes, I I became a Christian as a teen. My my parents, who are classic Aussies, just salt of the earth, very good people, you know, at the time, they were really aggressively shutting down our church involvement. And at the time, you know, we're angsty teenagers. We're convinced that they're persecuting us for our faith. <laughs> Honestly, Mike, now that I'm a dad, I, I really think they were trying to protect their kids from yep. joining a cult. Yep. Especially you think about your average secular person, and suddenly you've got a couple of Jesus freaks in the house that are always talking about it. And suddenly this, like, this guy shows up. Like, who is this man? And why is he suddenly dominating my kid's life? So my parents were very suspicious and protective and oddly, that really forged our faith. My sister wow. and I really buckled down together. But our youth group was remarkable. There's about 30 kids in the youth group. About 27 of us came from completely secular backgrounds. So it was unique for sure. What do you think? You know, you look back at that and you think of Elaine living out her faith like she did. Just that contagious, and I love how you said it, it's that contagious faith of hers. Yeah. What is different about your life if you don't meet Christ, if your sister oh doesn't meet Elaine and Elaine's influence over her and your sister's influence over you, what do you think would be different about you? Oh, my goodness. I, my, my, I would have unbridled ambition. I would have to be the most important guy in every room. Um, you know, I remember even some of those early years as a Christian, so insecure and desperate for someone to like me and laugh at my jokes. And, and it got pretty dark. If, if, if somebody didn't laugh at one of my jokes, I would then turn my attention on that person and laugh at them. And just, I think my dark shadow side that we all have would be unbridled. Mm. Um, and, and I'm sure I would be uh, a country vet somewhere in Western Australia. That was my dream <laughs> to be a rural vet. I just wanted to deliver calves and sheep, you know, and, <laughs> So to be a farm vet, I, I would have been living on a farm and probably pretty happy with that. But um, boy, that that underbelly, right, would have, I think, would have probably destroyed me. And it really changed the whole trajectory of your life. You meet Christ and you go on to Bible college, correct? Right out of high school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I actually went from high school. I went to university to become a vet. And it's all I had ever wanted to do with my life. And then six weeks in, I was miserable. I mean, I had one dream, and that was to be a farm vet. And here I am in veterinary school, like, this is not what I thought. And it really was God making me restless. Um, I still have a profound love of animals, but God, I really feel like God said, look, you know, there's sheep and then there's sheep, buddy. You know, like, right. like who, who do you want to spend <laughs> your life pouring into? And um yeah, I, I remember it took me a week to have the courage to tell my parents and mm. say, look, uh, I want to drop out of university and I want to become a minister. In Australia, um, a minister is also a, a politician, like a minister of parliament or a minister of the treasury. And 
And so, you know, politicians, preachers, and lawyers are pretty much the bottom of the barrel. They, they're they probably lower than used car salespeople in the spectrum. So when I said, I want to be a minister, my folks are like, what kind of minister do you have in mind? And I said, I want to preach the gospel. I want to tell people about Jesus. And uh, my sister's a lawyer, so she's already kind of, <laughs> in some ways, the family disappointment. Um, although, you know, of course, I'm I'm profoundly proud of my sister. She she uses law to protect under-resourced mm, people. It's, that's it's incredible. fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so my parents shockingly gave me their blessing. And it really is shocking because to this day, they're not followers of Christ, but they really did go out of their way to try to understand what we were about. I think by then they saw that we weren't in a cult, that we were bringing all our family values of commitment and ethics into our faith. And so we were just committed to our church, the way our parents had taught us to be committed to it. Like when I used to play field hockey as mm. a kid, you know, like be committed to that. And so they gave me their blessing and uh, that began this incredible adventure that I relocated to America for theology school, for Bible college. Cause I was, I was theologically, Oh my, uh, I was, I was um, illiterate. So I, I went to a Bible college that really focused on giving you theology, getting you in the Bible. And it was incredible. It was fantastic. And you really began to lay that foundation in the Bible college and then went and became a trauma chaplain, correct? Was that after yeah. graduation, yeah. correct? Yeah, graduated from Bible college, got married to my college sweetheart, uh, went on our honeymoon. And then the day after our honeymoon, Lisa dropped me off to become a trauma chaplain. 28-hour shift was my first ever you know, my first day on the job wasn't even a day. It was a day and a bit, 28 <laughs> hours. And uh, and really, I took the job because I needed one year of work while mm. Lisa finished up college. And um, chaplaincy, this is still the case in America. Um, medical students become me medical residents and ministry students do a chaplain residency. So I did a one-year chaplain residency. And uh, yeah, it changed my life. What was it that you didn't expect? that you learned in that hospital that even today later in life, and you've got a family and incredible ministry to so many people, what did you learn in there? You could not have learned anywhere else. Yeah. I love that question. There are so many things I learned. If I had to boil it down to the, to one, it's the counterintuitive move that if you really want to care for others, serve them well, you have to know what's going on in yourself. So mm. in order to focus on others, it feels selfish to say, it, but you must first focus on yourself because there's all these things in us that get triggered when we're under pressure. You know, you take like a school principal or maybe a business manager um, and you have that one teacher or that one administrator or that one employee that's just irritating. Whenever you have team meetings, they're always negative or cynical. Or maybe something silly, Mike, like they're just always chronically late. Mm. You know, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's prompt people who love Jesus, and then there's chronically late people who are always surprised they're late. Like they show up <laughs> eight minutes late. They're like, oh, man, I was late again. Like, you're always late. Um, so, you know, in chaplaincy, uh, what happens is all of those irritabilities and triggers are in you. And in chaplaincy, it's, it's the context of death, trauma, and sickness that... Mm heighten them. And if you're not careful, you get infected by your own triggers, by what, what is known clinically as chronic anxiety. 
and you're now no longer able to connect and it gets really particular. So like you can't connect to another human being while you're judging them, for example. And I was surprised to discover in chaplaincy how judgmental I was. Wow. So like if somebody would would come in and maybe they were wearing a seatbelt, but they did not buckle their kids up because the kids begged to not wear a seatbelt and they gave in to the kids. Rather than having any mercy or empathy for that mum, I was judging her. <laughs> These kids are in the ER fighting for their lives. And here I am judging this mother because in the Cuss family, like wearing a seatbelt is number one. Like Mike, for real, if I turned out to be a serial killer, which I'm not yeah. like, it's okay. <laughs> but if I, if I did... My parents would say, well, was he wearing a seatbelt as he drove to murder those people? Because if he was wearing a seatbelt, not so bad. Like, that's how seriously in the Cuss family. And so I just, I never would have imagined that I have all of these things under the surface, as well as fears. Um, You know, someone coming through the gurney in the ER, and my first thought is, oh, please, God, don't let it be my wife, Lisa. Mm. Well, all of that comes to the surface and I cannot connect to people when I'm busy throwing a little party that is not my wife. So this is true in whatever context you're in. It just so happens that chaplaincy or or death and trauma, they're kind of like a boot camp for all of this. But that's my number one lesson. If I want to really help others, I have to know what's going on in me. Because if I don't pay attention and take care of what's going on in me, I'm not helpful to God or to other people. And that that's the lesson I continue to work through. How did you learn that? So it's one thing to recognize it. It's another thing to fix it. And it's another thing to, and it's not a one-time fix. It's an ongoing fix in your life. How did you yeah. learn to see it and then unpack it and do something with that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. This is something I've been studying recently, because that chaplaincy journey was 25 years ago, and I'm still mining lessons out of it. Mm. But as what I thought about recently, Mike was I was like, okay, there's chaplains, there's counselors, there's social workers, and then there's like Red Cross disaster relief. If you think of these Mm -hmm. four groups of people, the one thing we have all been trained to do is restrain our impulses. And somewhere, because chaplaincy, they they generally refuse to train you. It's more that they throw you in and then you debrief. It's a, it's a reverse training. They say, go do it. And now we're going to talk about it every morning for an hour and a half. So every morning, all the chaplain residents and the supervisors met together for 90 minutes. And we were debriefed the day before. And what they were trying to do is help us become aware of ourselves so we could restrain our natural impulses and be more responsive than reactive. Mm. So a simple example, Mike, this is something I'm working on in my life right now. When somebody is venting about the situation, even as simple as my wife being frustrated at her phone, she can't get her phone to behave the way she wants. And she's venting to me, my brain tells me she wants you to fix that for her. And I can't, my initial response is I can't tell the difference between when she's asking me to intervene and when she's just venting. And what happens is I will intervene when she did not want me to intervene because I can't read the situation. My chronic anxiety has kind of made me drunk, if you will, or it's infected my ability to see. And then she'll get quite upset. Like, what do you think? I, I, and I've had, Lisa's done this to me. She's like, I, I need to work this out on my own. I need to figure this out. 
but here I am saving the day because mm-hmm. there's something in me that loves to be the hero, especially for my wife. I love to help my wife. But of course, there's times where she really wants yeah. my help. And there's times where she's like, I'm just expressing frustration. That's all I'm doing, Steve. Like, like that message in your brain that says rescue me, that's a false message. Mm. Now, all of us have 50 or dozens of these false messages, and you'd be blown away. So, so chaplaincy, of course, became the incredible boot camp for me to realize that thing I feel like I need to say, that thing I feel like I need to do, don't trust it. Just before you jump in, just just sift it. And what I had to learn to do is really engage God in the moment. And it only takes 30 seconds. It's not a long process just to feel that reactivity, to to name it. You know, that's why I called it managing leadership anxiety, because you will never eliminate it. I still work on this today, but I can manage it instead of it managing me and say, do they really need me to say something right now? Or do I need me to say something? And most leaders, it takes just a while to tell the difference. I think of just where we all, so I lead a church staff. There's principals that lead schools. There's coaches that lead ball teams. There's business leaders that lead lots of employees. How, what are things they can learn from the unpacking you did as a job? Because I think most people literally job start, they get thrown in and they only get called in when something's bad. What are what are some leadership tips out of that? Because I think there's a lot that young leaders face and yeah. they don't know. Nobody's ever told them, yeah, that right. probably wasn't a good response. How did you handle that when you put on the pastor's hat and you began to manage a team of people? What are lessons you took from the hospital and the way you yeah. were trained that applied back into your life? Yeah, what a great question. That that was the biggest surprise of my life is, that, is I, I kind of finished up with hospital. I did my grad degree after that, then went into local church ministry. And I used the lessons informally in my head. I, I My first ministry was crisis intervention work in Las Vegas. So there's a lot in common with chaplaincy there. But then when I got into leading an organization, you know, I became a lead pastor and now I'm leading a complex multi-staff budget, spreadsheets, boards, all of that, all of the things that come with leading an organization. And um, I was chagrined to discover that leadership is almost as traumatic as death. Like, like what what hospital chaplaincy gave me was a context to catalyze my awareness of all this stuff. But it turns out that suburban lead pastoring is <laughs> about as <laughs> stressful. And and I think the same, Mike. I think I think here's what's in common. Let's take that young coach that's taking on maybe his or her first team or second team of teenagers. Let's take maybe let's take a school administrator who who started out as a classroom educator and they've gotten promoted and now they're actually more leading adults than managing kids. The common theme is if you just put yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do, but you're the one that is responsible to do something, that's the gap that mm-hmm. every leader mm-hmm. needs to become aware of their own triggers. So in our church, we actually prescribe to our interns, okay, in the next two weeks, you have to lead something that you don't know how to lead. We're going to stack your team with people that know more than you do. So one of my interns, Brendan, who now uh, actually coaches these tools with me, early on his first year with me, I said, okay, Brendan, you are going to lead the team that builds a prayer labyrinth on our property. 
And that involves the city council, that involves the city planning department, that involves landscape architects, and that involves spiritual directors. And Brendan was a college student, and everyone on his team were experts, and he was the novice. And we did that to him so that there'd be a gap between what he had to lead and what he knew so he could learn about himself, his reactivity, his tendency, his and in Brendan's case, and I'm sharing this with his permission, one of his triggers is I need to look smart in a in a public space. Mm-hmm. And for him, that that came back to an incident when he was in elementary school when the teacher pulled him up in front of the classroom in third grade and made him a negative example. And so now he has this need to always show that he knows what he's doing. So we had to put him in that pressurized context safely like the people on his team all knew hey this is an intern so they were gentle on him but that's how you grow as a leader and so a lot of the training we do mike is we we prescribe homework and and the other thing we do and this sounds even worse but let's take your average school principal maybe they have a staff member but maybe it's a parent every school i know has those parents oh my goodness no reasoning with them they believe that 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 they can treat you inhumanely, like they believe mm-hmm. somehow they have the right to mistreat you. Okay, so then your homework is to intentionally meet with that parent and pay attention to what's going on in you instead of just getting wrapped up in their anxiety because what's normally happening without this work is you're catching their anxiety and then you're becoming reactive. But if you do this practice, then you can practice becoming connected instead of infectious and it's i make that sound easy it's a, it's a hard journey but those are some of the things we have people do do you still now i want to dive into that and unpack it a little bit do you still struggle with it do you find even now knowing all that you know you still find yourself getting sucked in to an anxious person's uh, emotions and reacting out of it for sure mm-hmm. we we do a two-year class at our church on this like that's a long wow. time people sign up for nine months and then they can re-up for another nine months so I guess it's 18 months. We take summers off and stuff, but it's, but, but what we tell them is like, Hey, you never graduate from this. This That's is right. not something that you bank. It's more a way of being. So now that I teach it so much, my score has gotten higher, but when I was in the trenches of full-time ministry and I wasn't traveling and teaching this so much, I would live the way I'm telling you maybe three or four times out of 10. Mm. And that's a really good score. The, the, what happens, particularly for followers of Christ, we want everything to be 100%. We use language like all in, I'm sold out for Jesus. And I'm sure that's true. I'm not, I have no problem with sold out language, all in language. I do believe Jesus invites us to give every fiber of our being to him and his sovereignty. Yes. But also, if you can just do it 10 or 15% of the time, that actually feels like relief. Mm. So my early students, we actually assign them to try to do it one out of 10 times. Um, and we blame baseball. We're like, hey, your average batter, if they can hit the ball three out of 10 times that That's bad, right. they get paid millions of dollars to be failures seven out of 10 times. So don't worry about it. Uh, and so the next book I'm working on is actually a spiritual growth book. And one of the things I'm going to say is, look, one out of 10 is an A. Mm. Um, our heart is sold out, but our life is not. We are actually filled with anxiety most of the time. And the only person that's surprised about that is us. God is not surprised. He only expects us to be human. So yes, I'm I'm still practicing these things every day. 
and my score is probably higher now, but it's not it's not eight out of ten. It's probably five or six out of ten. That's so fascinating. You you made a comment. I think this was from one of your mentors when you were in the hospital. Why are we always trying to gravitate from his power to be made perfect in our weakness? Why are we always trying to pull away and and um operate in a place that God wants us to learn from our weaknesses? Why is it so important that every Christ following leader knows that's not going away and there's incredible growth that can happen in our weaknesses? Yeah, I think I think this is such an important question. My my theory is, I, I may be wrong on this, Mike, but my theory is in Western culture, we only know how to be in control. And the fact is, living by faith, following an, an invisible God, rooted in an, a historical event that's 2,000 years old, that's hard. But we've been living with ourselves for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't take much for us, particularly in the West, where the entire momentum of culture is oriented to our safety, comfort, security. I just don't think we know how to live by faith well because we do not have persecution like the historical church. And uh, we had a plague uh, called COVID, but it didn't bring us to our knees. It actually entrenched us into our rights. I think we failed. I think COVID was an opportunity to humble us, but instead we got more self-righteous. So we we don't have persecution, we don't have plague, and we, as a general rule, most of us don't have poverty. Those are the three contexts through human history that God has used to disciple God's people. That's why the persecuted Chinese church is a hero of ours, the early church with martyrdom. Um my beef is that we write too many books saying that we should be more like the Chinese church. We should be more like the book of Acts. I think that betrays a more nuanced understanding that we just have a different challenge in Western culture that's free. And so I think the 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 short answer to your question is because we don't actually live by faith. We live by self. And I think what's important is to have that conversation without the guilt and shame that comes with it. Yeah. Just to very soberly say, I probably actually only follow God like 18 to 22% of my life, actually. Mm. And okay, well, what does it look like to follow God more often or deeper? But because we we are in church cultures that use this sold out 100% language, we end up saying, oh, not good enough, should do better, must do better, try harder, more of the same. And in what I've been trained in, systems theory, try harder and more of the same are signs that you're stuck in a pattern of no progress. So, so I think the path to discipleship is through noticing our anxiety because our, I think anxiety is the sign that we're depending on ourselves, not on God. That's good. Um, that's a deep answer, but that's no, what I would say. That's a great answer. And I, you know, and I think there are some leaders that go, well, I don't have leadership anxiety. I don't, I, I really doesn't affect me, but you would say everybody experiences leadership anxiety. Explain a little bit behind the overarching theme of what leadership anxiety is. And when we finally recognize it, what are some steps we can begin to take to untangle those things? That's a great question. So for the leader who says, you know, I don't think this is for me. um, That's because that leader thinks of anxiety as worry and fear. But leadership anxiety is just the 
colloquial phrase for what's clinically known as chronic anxiety. Mm. Leadership anxiety looks like reactivity, not fear. So for the leader that says, I'm not anxious, what you can do is say, what makes me reactive? And when we're reactive, we either get bigger or smaller than human-sized. So most leaders that say, I'm not anxious, get bigger when they're reactive, which then shuts down their team, their team gets smaller. So what you can do if you say, I'm not anxious, is you can ask somebody on your team or somebody who loves you, how do you know I'm anxious when I don't know I'm anxious? Because the most dangerous leader is the one that is spreading all the anxiety and unaware of any of it. So clinically, chronic anxiety, it's a particular form of anxiety. What you have to do, Mike, is, is in our society today, on the one hand, I'm very happy that we're talking about anxiety. That's very good. But we're still talking about it so generally. Yep. The only way we're going to make progress is to get very specific because there's so many kinds of anxiety. So, for example, trauma is a genuine form of anxiety, but trauma is generated by an actual historical event in your life. Something happened to you, but chronic anxiety is generated by a false belief, not an actual event. And so, for example, for me, I believe that everyone I ever meet should like me. Hmm. And I believe I must have that in, in order for me to be okay. I believe that if I'm in a room and you ask someone else a question and I know the answer, I believe I need to answer it, even though you didn't ask me. So we all have these core beliefs that drive chronic anxiety. And I, I call them false beliefs. Another way to think them through is false needs. And of course, chaplains, he exposed all of these for me. Here's one for me, Mike. I believe that I'm supposed to make everyone feel better when they're upset. Now, you put a chaplain in the room with death, the, the one thing humans really cannot fix, but I believe I'm supposed to fix, and that's why I say stupid things, pithy things, maybe even quote the Bible sometimes, not because the people need it, but because my false need is telling me you have to do this. So what that looks like, Mike, is I have to anxiously calm people down so I can be calm. Mm, and mm. what I coach people to do is learn to calm yourself down. And then the other person may or may not calm down. Um, toddlers are a great gift for this. Just spend some time with toddlers when they throw a tantrum and notice your reaction. What I often do with a toddler is I'm anxiously trying to quieten them because I need that for myself. So chronic anxiety, you know, some leaders, what they need is to always be in control. Some leaders need to always do it perfectly. Um, some need to always know the answer like me. Some need to always be there for people. And some always need approval. There's five general false needs of every human. So those are control, perfection, knowing the answer, being there for others and approval. Those are what we call the big five. And, and probably your typical leader that says I'm not anxious is probably either a control freak or a perfectionist. Mm. But if you're a perfectionist, all you have to do is pay attention to the voice in your head. What it's saying is it it's never giving you credit for good work. It only ever says you could do better. Mm. That's not a way to relax into the goodness of God. That's that's what's biblically called self-righteousness. Mm. I I uh I don't remember who I had on, and they made a great statement. I think it was Karen Gordon. And she said the danger is when 
if somebody has spoken negative into our lives, we turn their voice into our own voice. And it's our own voice saying, you're not enough. You'll never get it right. Now, somebody else may have yeah. told us that. And we're yeah. already, I heard you share with Carrie Newhoff. It was so good about you think you can lunch people out of leaving your church. And right. I just I wanted to pull my car over and just confess because I always feel like I can talk people out of things. Oh, right. I know that you've spent years processing this, but give me a 30 minute lunch with you and I can talk you out of this for That's three right. months before you leave again. That's right. If if I were sitting in your office and I said, yeah, Steve, man, that is a struggle for me to feel like I always have to win people over by saying too many yeses, by packing my calendar. What yeah. would you tell me that I need to begin to learn to pay attention to before I dive in to do any of those self-medicating things? That's good. Yeah, you do. It is very powerful to see if you can take these behavior. And sometimes you need a friend to help you with this. See if you can turn it into a belief statement. Mm. I believe that I can win everybody over if I use enough words. That would be something I believe. Um, one of the triggers for me is being misunderstood. So I believe when you misunderstand me, I can use more words and you will understand me. Mm. So that's where I would start is, and then you have to write it out because if you name things, you can tame things. Yep. So in the, in the science of chronic anxiety, if you think about it, you won't change, but if you externalize in some way, what the Bible calls confession, that's right. Write it out, tell a friend, but, but name it to tame it. And then Mike, where things get really fun. I, I you know, I do workshops in all kinds of organizations. They'll have me come in and I'll do a four hour, a six hour, sometimes a two day workshop. And we get right into all of this and people are practicing in the moment. And I know this sounds serious. We are, we are having hysterical laughter. I bring goofy prizes. There's a whole science to how to actually change your behavior. So I've studied that science and I'll bring it. But where things get really real with people is when we do brave practice is what it's called. So what you would have to do, Mike, is that person that is disgruntled rather than trying to gruntle them is what we teasingly call it. Like I prefer <laughs> gruntled people. I like gruntled people. Um, is you, what you do is you go meet with them and you refuse to explain yourself or convince. You you simply meet to learn. I, I am just here to listen to your point of view. The person says, hey, I'm leaving. Oh, I would love to meet to learn why you're leaving and to bless you as you leave. But that impulse in me to convince, not doing it today, so you have to go bravely practice, and then you have to reflect and debrief on what was that like for me? I mm. almost died. Mm. Um, you know, a simple example, I remember one of our uh, worship leaders in our church, she was a young intern, and she was doing all the, these classes with us. We had one musician that was chronically late to practice. He'd always show up 15 minutes late, but he kind of flaunted it. Like he would show up late and then just creep his way down the aisle to the stage to plug in. It, it was really obnoxious, but she's a chronic people pleaser. So she's at the back of the auditorium in our sound booth. He's walking by her and he flippantly says, sorry, I'm late. And then he just painstakingly slow down. Sometimes you'll stop and have a conversation with someone on the way. Everyone's waiting on this guy. He's the one generating the anxiety. She's the one cat carrying it. And so she's her attempted solution is to say, oh, that's okay. You've probably had a busy day. She's letting him off the hook. Because her belief is that's what Jesus calls us to do. We get really confused between being nice and placating in the gospel. 
So we coached her in all this. She named a belief. We said, okay, brave practice. This week, you have to tell him off when he's late. And so she tried it. He walks down the aisle and he stops. Sorry, I'm late. And she couldn't do it. She couldn't say, you know what? When you're late, everyone suffers and I'm fed up. So she just, that was too much for her. So she just looked at him and she said, uh-huh. And gave him like a disapproving face. And he, and what that's called is she put the anxiety back where it belongs. Now wow. he's carrying his own anxiety. He walks down and she turns blood red. She's hyperventilating. She's literally hiding down in the AV booth because that was all she could do. But that one change made him on time for about 10 weeks. And then he became late again. It didn't last. But that's brave practice. So you have to be willing to put yourself in anxious situations and do the opposite of your impulse. And it's really powerful. You you make a great statement. And you talk about if you don't figure this out as a leader, if you don't learn how to unpack you, it's going to affect the people you lead in a detrimental way. Cause I think we always look out and go, well, I need to fix them. And really the reality is yes, but there's a lot of fixing that goes on in us. What happens to a leader that just refuses to take the mirror out and have someone help them manage their anxiety? Yeah. So the general rule of anxiety, of chronic anxiety, the kind of anxiety we're talking about, there's a couple of general rules. Number one, it's the only anxiety that's contagious. And, and once you learn that, it can change your life because trauma is not contagious. Grief is not contagious. Those are different kinds of anxieties. Acute anxiety, which is life and death anxiety. Maybe you lose a child in a playground or maybe you have to swerve your car to avoid an accident. That's clinically called acute anxiety. All right, we have all these different anxieties. We're not even getting into bipolar disorder, that's anxiety, right. depression. We're just talking garden variety human anxieties but chronic anxiety reactivity is contagious and so when a leader has power because they're in charge and they are anxious it's horrible for everybody because the leader is catching all the anxiety in the room and spreading all the anxiety in the room and what that looks like is burnout frustration both in the leader and in the team um you know i, I have a friend and he won't have me come in. He's a very type A driven in his, he's a business leader. And one day he called me, he's like, Steve, so like this book and everything you wrote, do you just sit around and talk about your feelings all the time. And I'm like, Oh, no, that sounds terrible. No, we, we, we run, we work hard, we get after it. I said, what happens is we we do some of that conversation early on to set a baseline. But now it's all shorthand. The difference between me and you, I, I just told him, I said, is I don't burn my team out. Mm. And I don't run at a pace that I can't manage wow. and then have to flee to Belize twice a year to recover. No, I run at a sustainable pace. My youth minister serves with me. He's been with me for 15 years. Longest serving youth minister in the state of Colorado. Whereas, you know, you know, Mike, as a pastor, oh, yeah. you can measure the health of your church staff by the tenure of that youth minister. That's exactly right. Yeah, so so that saves me money just to be crass. Just let's talk about bottom line. Like a lot of leaders, like let's just get to the bottom line. I can make you more profitable because turnover is expensive, mm. and staff well being. The way you always put more on them and and don't respect their deadlines and their pace and interrupt and say, hey, this like some leaders, everything is always urgent and you know about it and you don't care. 
Well, I, I want to teach you to care about the impact because you'll get more out of your employees if you respect them, let them give you input on how they experience you. Um, so, yeah, that's I, I kind of lost the question in there. But no, that's, that's, no, what I would say. that's phenomenal, though. You know, I even think back, Steve, to Jesus and his disciples. You know, here here's the son of God, 100 percent God, 100 percent man meeting with 12 very earthly very interesting, anxious men. Yeah. What's a scenario Jesus handled something well that you go, yeah, that's where he understood his group and managed their anxiety well. What's a moment in Jesus' ministry you remember him doing that? Yeah, I love that question because I'm actually going to write a book in the future, and it is going to be Jesus and the four spaces of anxiety. Wow. There's four different spaces, and so I'll just teach them briefly, and then you'll see, you can read your Gospels that will revolutionize the way you see Jesus interacting. So the first space of anxiety is always the space inside me. That's the one you and I have been focusing on really this whole time. The second space is the space between me and one other person. Marriages, is if you have a kid. And, you know, anyone who's been married where fights just suddenly escalate, that second space. Third space is anytime my brain, it's the space inside the other. My brain is now in your brain. Man, I wonder what Mike's thinking. How's this podcast going? Is Mike liking this? I am worried about what you are thinking about. Or same if you've ever raised a teenager, it's not what were they thinking. It's what were they thinking? It's that same like (laughs) irritant. So some people listening to this, you have employees that irritate you and you're trying to worry your way to them changing Mm. their behavior. That's third space. Fourth space is the space between others. You walk in and there's already a mood in the room. Or sometimes you're in the room and Jim walks in and the room cools down because when Jim ain't happy, ain't nobody allowed to be happy. Yep. No one's ever talked about it. Everyone secretly agrees to it. There's all these fascinating things with anxiety. Let's talk to Jesus. All four spaces. He he worked and ministered in all four spaces. Um, the, the space inside him I find fascinating because people really don't believe that most of Jesus' ministry was taking care of himself and out of the outpouring of that. So Mark 135 would be a, an example of when it was still early, Jesus got up, went to a quiet place and abided with the Father. You can count the times that Jesus, I I don't mean to be crass, but stepped over a sick person to get his disciples on a boat and leave the crowd. Like we, when we think of Jesus, we think he healed everybody. No, he didn't. Mm. And also many of his healings were done for spite, not for the recipient. Like sometimes Jesus healed somebody just to annoy the Pharisee. Oh, don't heal on the Sabbath. Watch this. And then he'd heal. And like some guys like, Hey, that was fun. I get to walk. But really the healing was to teach the the Pharisees a lesson. So I think we get confused. Uh, First space, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane at the end of his life. He's, he's sweating like drops of blood. That's what's called acute anxiety, life Mm -hmm. and death. He's, he's seeing he's preempting a trauma crucifixion, but then something happened, Mike. From that moment to when he faces Pontius Pilate and he is connected, aware, and present. He gets falsely accused. When I get falsely accused, I get reactive. Jesus just refused to explain himself when I incessantly have to. So that would just be Jesus in first space. 
if we just do Jesus, That's we can so do all good. the spaces with Jesus, but if we just did Jesus with fourth space, how many times did he walk into a hostile situation and calm it down? Yep. Just like anxiety is infectious, connected presence is infectious. Mm. So if you do this work on yourself and you come into an anxious room just by being connected and aware, you can be a gift to your people. So John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus willingly steps in front of an armed, violent mob. And just the, the number one tool to diffuse anxiety is curiosity. And here's Jesus. Who among you is without sin? Let's have a stone-throwing party. And and then the curiosity to the woman who woman who condemns you. To me, I, I mean, I get chills. But even when the the Pharisees were trying to push him off a cliff or trap him or all this anxiety flying at him, he he was so connected to God, he managed his reactivity. And there's a whole science of that called differentiation of self. Probably a bit too much for today, but um. Man, I could talk all day about Jesus and how he did that. Final question of the day. It's, it's so good. And this is so rich. And what I love is how everything you've done is just grounded out of the word. What do you think the Lord would want leaders to know about his presence with them while they lead? What would you say? I, I think clinically, perfect love casts out fear. Uh, if I could just reword that a little bit, reactivity casts out our awareness of perfect love. It doesn't, when we are anxious, we do not cast God anywhere. We're not that powerful. But what's worse is we forget the Lord. And that's what happened to me as a chaplain. I walked into those rooms. Oh, what do I have to do? What do I have to say? Oh, no. But I had to learn to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's already in this room. When I walk into this anxious room, I'm entering the presence where God is at work. So, Let's take your average business leader, your average school principal, your coach. The next event that you are stepping into that's anxious, maybe a PTA meeting, yeah. you know, just that simple acknowledgement, the Lord is in that in this place. So what Jacob said in Genesis, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. That's the prayer or the confession of the anxious person. So just taking that 30 seconds, that one minute and saying, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm boy, this is going to be a tough meeting. I am here to attend to your presence, and then I will act out of that. It's not on my shoulders. You're with me. And that that's changed my life. So I think that's what God would want us to know. Um, and obviously, Mike, I've, we've done a, a, quite a short thing here. You know, people can go to my website. We've got all manner of free and paid resources that they can dive into. Um, that class I teach at my church, we have an online digital version for anybody that can it's self-paced, but there's self-assessments in there. We do monthly Zooms, all kinds of stuff that people, if they want to dig in more there. You know, that's one you almost have to listen to twice. There is so much content, real world, right where we all live. Good, good stuff from Steve. Golly. I, I am so excited to journey through his book this fall with some of my groups because it's so universal and it's just something we all grapple with. We're all going to struggle with. And the more tools we have in our toolbox, I think the better off we can be. Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing your journey with us and helping us be the leaders that we were created to be. 
Well, in episode 183, I get to sit down with the world-renowned Horst Schultze. You may remember him from his days at the Ritz-Carton. You may know him from his last work with the Capella Group of hotels across the world. He is known as the leader in customer service and hospitality. And we're going to be talking about why excellence always wins. And it is going to be one of the best episodes I have ever put out. And I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. Well, if you've enjoyed this, please share this with a friend. If you could leave a rating and review, that does help others find their way to us. But once again, thanks for joining in. Thanks for pulling up a chair. And thanks for being a part of helping make Lynch with a Leader something that may raise the spiritual temperature of leaders across this country. Hope you have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.